Chapter Nine of Mary Barton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Wendy in Lehigh, Utah. Mary Barton by Elizabeth Claycorn Gaskell. Chapter Nine, Barton's London Experiences. A life of self-indulgence is for us. A life of self-denial is for them. For us the streets, broad-built and populous. For them unhealthy corners, garrets dim and cellars where the water-rat may swim. For us green paths refreshed by frequent rain. For them dark alleys where the dust lies grim. Not doomed by us to this appointed pain. God made us rich and poor. Of what do these complain? Mrs. Norton's Child of the Islands the next evening it was a warm, pattering, incessant rain, just the rain to waken up the flowers. But in Manchester, where, alas, there are no flowers, the rain had only a disheartening and gloomy effect. The streets were wet and dirty, the drippings from the houses were wet and dirty, and the people were wet and dirty. Indeed, most kept within doors, and there was an unusual silence of footsteps in the little paved courts. Mary had to change her clothes after her walk home, and had hardly settled herself before she heard someone fumbling at the door. The noise continued long enough to allow her to get up, and go and open it. There stood, could it be? Yes, it was her father. Drenched and wayworn, there he stood. He came in with no word to Mary, in return for her cheery and astonished greeting. He sat down by the fire in his wet things, unheeding. But Mary would not let him so rest. She ran up and brought down his working-day clothes, and went into the pantry to rummage up their little bit of provision while he changed by the fire, talking all the while as gaily as she could, though her father's depression hung like a lead on her heart. For Mary, in her seclusion at Miss Simmons, where the chief talk was of fashions and dress and parties to be given, for which such and such gowns would be wanted, varied with a slight whispered interlude occasionally about love and lovers, had not heard the political news of the day, that Parliament had refused to listen to the working men when they petitioned, with all the force of their rough, untutored words, to be heard concerning the distress which was riding, like the conqueror on his pale horse among the people, which was crushing their lives out of them and stamping woe-marks over the land. When he had eaten and was refreshed, they sat for some time in silence, for Mary wished him to tell her what oppressed him so, yet durst not ask. In this she was wise, for when we are heavy-laden in our hearts, it falls in better with our humour to reveal our case in our own way and our own time. Mary sat on a stool at her father's feet, in old childish guise, and stole her hand into his, while his sadness infected her, and she caught the trick of grief and sighed she knew not why. Mary, we must speak to our God to hear us, for man will not hearken, no. Not now, when we weep tears of blood. In an instant, Mary understood the fact, if not the details, that so weighed down her father's heart. She pressed his hand with silent sympathy. She did not know what to say, and was so afraid of speaking wrongly that she was silent. But when his attitude had remained unchanged for more than half an hour, his eyes gazing vacantly and fixedly at the fire, no sound— but now and then a deep-drawn sigh to break the weary ticking of the clock, and the drip-drop from the roof without. Mary could bear it no longer, 
anything to rouse her father, even bad news. Father, do you know George Wilson's dead? Her hand was suddenly and almost violently compressed. He dropped down dead in Oxford Road yesterday morning. That's very sad, isn't it, father? Her tears were ready to flow as she looked up in her father's face for sympathy. Still the same fixed look of despair, not varied by grief for the dead. Best for him to die, he said in a low voice. This was unbearable. Mary got up under pretense of going to tell Margaret that she need not come to sleep with her tonight, but really to ask Job Lee to come and cheer her father. She stopped outside the door. Margaret was practicing her singing, and through the still night air her voice rang out, like that of an angel. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. The old Hebrew prophetic words fell like dew on Mary's heart. She could not interrupt. She stood listening and comforted, till the little buzz of conversation began again, and then entered and told her errand. Both grandfather and granddaughter rose instantly to fulfill her request. "'He's just tired out, Mary,' said old Job. "'He'll be a different man tomorrow.' There is no describing the looks and tones that have power over an aching, heavy-laden heart. But in an hour or so, John Barton was talking away as freely as ever, though all his talk ran, as was natural, on the disappointment of his fond hope, of the forlorn hope of many. "'Ay, London's a fine place,' said he, "'and finer folk live in it than I ever thought on, "'or ever heard tell on except in the story-books. "'They're having their good things now, "'that afterwards they may be tormented. "'Still, at the old parable of Dives and Lazarus, "'does it haunt the minds of the rich "'as it does those of the poor?' "'Do tell us all about London, dear father,' asked Mary, "'who was sitting at her old post by her father's knee. "'How can I tell you all about it, when I never seed one-tenth of it? "'It's as big as six Manchesters,' they told me. "'One-sixth may be made up of grand palaces, three-sixths of middling kind, "'and the rest of holes of iniquity and filth such as Manchester knows not on, I'm glad to say.' "'Well, father, but did you see the Queen?' "'I believe I didn't, though one day I'd thought I'd seen her many a time. "'You see,' said he, turning to Job Lee, "'there were a day appointed for us to go to Parliament House. "'We were most on us biding at a public house in Holborn, "'where they did very well for us. "'The morning of taking our petition, "'we had such a spread for breakfast as the Queen herself might have sitting down to. "'I suppose they thought we wanted pudding in heart. "'There were mutton kidneys and sausages and broiled ham "'and fried beef and onions, more like a dinner nor a breakfast.' Many on our chaps, though I could see, could eat but little. The food stuck in their throats when they thought of them at home. Wives and little ones as had maybe at that very time not to eat. Well, after breakfast, we were all set to walk in procession, and a time it took to put us in order, two and two, and the petition, as was yards long, carried by the foremost pairs. The men looked grave enough, you may be sure, and such a set of thin, wan, wretched-looking chaps as they were. Yourself is none to boast on. "'Ay, but I were fat and rosy to many a one. "'Well, we walked on and on through many a street, "'much the same as Deansgate. "'We had to walk slowly, slowly, "'for the carriages and cabs as thronged the streets. "'I thought by and by we should maybe get clear on them, "'But as the streets grew wider, they grew worse, "'and at last we were fairly blocked up at Oxford Street. "'We getting across it after a while, though, "'and my eyes, the grand streets we were in then. "'They're sadly puzzled how to build houses, though, in London.' 
there'd be an opening for a good steady master builder there, as note his business. For you see the houses are many on em built without any proper shape for a body to live in. Some on em they've after thought would fall down, so they've stuck great ugly pillars out before them. And some on em, we thought they must be the tailor's sign, had gotten stone men and women as wanted clothes stuck on them. I were like a child. I forgot of my errand in looking about me. By this time, it were dinner time, were better, as we could tell by the sun right above our heads, and we were dusty and tired, going a step now and a step then. Well, at last, we getting into a street, grander nor all, leading to the Queen's Palace, and there it were, I thought, I saw the Queen. You've seen the hearses with white plumes, Job. Job assented. Well, them undertaker folk are driving a pretty trade in London. Well, nigh every lady we saw in a carriage had hired one of them plumes for the day, and had it niddle noddling on her head. It were the Queen's drawing-room, they said, and the carriages went bowling along towards her house, some with dressed-up gentlemen like circus folk in em, and ruxa ladies in others. Carriages themselves were great shakes, too. Some of the gentlemen, as couldn't get inside, hung on behind with nosegays to smell at, and sticks to keep off folk as might splash their silk stockings. I wonder why they didn't hire a cab rather than hang on like a whip-behind boy, but I suppose they wished to keep with their wives, Darby and Joan-like. Coachmen were little squat men with wigs like the old-fashioned parsons. Well, we could not get on for these carriages, though we waited and waited. The horses were too fat to move quick. They never known want of food, one might tell by their sleek coats, and police pushed us back when we tried to cross. One or two of them struck with their sticks, and coachmen laughed, and some officers as stood nigh put their spy-glasses in their eye and left em sticking there like mountebanks. One of the police struck me. "'What in business have you to do that?' said I. "'You're frightening them horses,' says he, in his mincing way, for Londoners are mostly all tongue-tied, and can't say their A's and I's properly. "'And it's our business to keep you from molesting the ladies and gentlemen going to Her Majesty's drawing-room.' "'And why are we to be molested?' asked I, going decently about our business, which is life and death to us, and many a little one clement at home in Lancashire. "'Which business is of most consequence in the sight of God, think you? "'Hourn of them, grand ladies and gentlemen, as you think so much on?' "'But I might as well have held my peace, for he only laughed.' "'John ceased. "'After waiting a little, to see if he would go on himself, Job said, "'Well, but that's not all your story, man. "'Tell us what happened when you got to the Parliament House.' After a little pause, John answered, "'If you please, neighbor, I'd rather say naught about that. It's not to be forgotten or forgiven either, by me or many another, but I cannot tell of our downcasting just as a piece of London news. As long as I live, our rejection of that day will abide in my heart, and as long as I live I shall curse them as so cruelly refused to hear us, but I'll not speak of it no more.' So daunted in their inquiries they sat silent for a few minutes. Old Job, however, felt that someone must speak, else all the good they had done in dispelling John Barton's gloom was lost. So after a while he thought of a subject, neither sufficiently dissonant from the last to jar on a full heart, nor too much the same to cherish the continuance of the gloomy train of thought. "'Did you ever hear tell,' said he to Mary, "'that I were in London once?' "'No,' said she with surprise, and looking at Job with increased respect." Ay, but I were, though, and Peg there, too, though she minds not about it, poor wench. You must know I had but one child, and she were Margaret's mother. I loved her above a bit, 
and one day she came, standing behind me for that I should not see her blushes and stroking my cheeks in her own coaxing way, and told me she and Frank Jennings, as was a joiner lodging near us, should be so happy if they were married. I could not find in my heart to say her nay, though I went sick at the thought of losing her away from my home. However, she was my only child, and I never said naught of what I felt for fear of grieving her young heart. But I tried to think of the time when I'd been young myself, and had loved her blessed mother, and how we'd left father and mother, and gone out into the world together. And I'm now right thankful I held my peace, and did not fret with telling her how sore I was at parting with her that were the light of my eyes. But, said Mary, you said the man were a neighbor. Aye, so he were, and his father afore him, but work were rather slack in Manchester, and Frank's uncle sent him word of London work and London wages, so he were to go there, and it were there Margaret was to follow him. Well, my heart aches yet at thought of those days. She's so happy, and he's so happy. Only the poor father is fretted sadly behind their backs. They were married, and stayed some days with me afore setting off, and I've often thought since. Margaret's heart failed her many a time those few days, and she would fain have spoken. But I knew from myself it were better to keep it pent up, and I never let on what I were feeling. I knew what she meant when she came kissing and holding my hand, and all her old childish ways of loving me. Well, they went at last. You know them two letters, Margaret? Yes, sure, replied his granddaughter. Well, them two were the only letters I ever had from her poor lass. She said in them she were very happy, and I believe she were. And Frank's family heard he were in good work. In one of her letters, poor thing, she ends with saying, Farewell, Grandad, with a line drawn under Grandad, and from that another hints I knew she were in the family way. And I said not, but I screwed up a little money, thinking come Whitsuntide, I'd take a holiday and go and see her and the little one. But one day towards Whitsuntide, come Jennings with a grave face, and says he, I hear our Frank and your Margaret's both get in the fever. He might have knocked me down with a straw, for it seemed as if God told me what the upshot would be. Old Jennings had gotten a letter, you see, from the landlady they lodged with, a well-penned letter, asking if they'd no friends to come and nurse them. She'd caught it first, and Frank, who was as tender over her as her own mother could have been, had nursed her till he'd caught it himself, and she, expecting her down-lying every day. Well, to make a long story short— Old Jennings and I went up by that night's coach. So you see, Mary, that was the way I got to London. But how was your daughter when you got there? asked Mary anxiously. She were at rest, poor wench, and so were Frank. I guessed as much when I see the landlady's face all swelled with crying when she opened the door to us. We said, where are they? And I knew they were dead from her look. But Jennings didn't, as I take it. For when she showed us into a room with a white sheet on the bed— and underneath it, plain to be seen, two still figures, he screeched out as if he'd been a woman. Yet he'd other children, and I'd none. There lay my darling, my only one. She were dead, and there were no one to love me, no, not one. I disremember rightly what I did, but I know I were very quiet while my heart were crushed within me. Jennings could not stand being in the room at all, so the landlady took him down, and I were glad to be alone. It grew dark while I sat there, and at last the landlady came up again and said, "'Come here.' So I got up and walked into the light, 
but I had to hold by the stair rails, I was so weak and dizzy. She led me into a room where Jennings lay on a sofa fast asleep, with his pocket-handkerchief over his head for a nightcap. She said he'd cried himself fairly off to sleep. There were tea on the table already, for she were a kind-hearted body. But she still said, Come here, and took hold of my arm. So I went round the table, and there were a clothes-basket by the fire with a shawl put over it. "'Lift that up,' says she, and I did. And there lay a little wee babby fast asleep. My heart gave a leap, and the tears came rushing into my eyes first time that day. "'Is it hers?' said I, though I knew it were. "'Yes,' said she. "'She were getting a bit better of the fever, and the babby were born. And then the poor young man took worse and died, and she were not many hours behind.' little mite of a thing and yet it seemed her angel come back to comfort me i were quite jealous of jennings whenever he went near the babby i thought it were more my flesh and blood than his'n and yet i were afraid he would claim it however that were far enough from his thoughts he'd plenty other children and as i found out after he'd all along been wishing me to take it well we buried margaret and her husband in a big crowded lonely churchyard in london I were loath to leave them there, as I thought. When they rose again, they'd feel so strange at first, away from Manchester and all old friends. But it could not be helped. Well, God watches over their graves there as well as here. That funeral cost a mint of money, but Jennings and I wished to do the thing decent. Then we'd the stout little babby to bring home. We'd not over much money left, but it were fine weather, and we thought we'd take the coach to Brummagen and walk on. It were a bright May morning when I last saw London town, looking back from a big hill a mile or two off. And in that big mass of a place I were leaving my blessed child asleep in her last sleep. Well, God's will be done. She's gotten to heaven afore me, but I shall get there at last, please God, though it's a long while first. The babby had been fed afore we set out, and the coach moving kept it asleep, bless its little heart but when the coach stopped for dinner it were awake and crying for its poppies. So we asked for some bread and milk, and Jennings took it first for to feed it. But it made its mouth like a square, and let it run out at each of the four corners. "'Shake it, Jennings,' said I. "'That's the way they make water run through a funnel when it's over full, and a child's mouth is broad end of the funnel, and the gullet the narrow one.' So he shook it, but it only cried the more." "'Let me have it,' says I, thinking he were an awkward old chap. "'But it were just as bad with me. "'By shaking the babby we got better nor a gill into its mouth, "'but more nor that came up again, "'wetting all the nice dry clothes landlady had put on. "'Well, just as we'd get into the dinner-table "'and helped ourselves and eaten two mouthful, "'came in the guard, and a fine chap with a sample of calico "'flourishing in his hand. "'Coach is ready,' says one. "'Half a crown your dinner,' says the other.' Well, we thought it a deal for both our dinners when we'd hardly tasted them, but, bless your life, it were half a crown apiece, and a shilling for the bread and milk as were posseted all over Babby's clothes. We spoke up again it, but everybody said it were the rule, so what could two poor old chaps like us do again it? Well, poor Babby cried without stopping to take a breath from that time till we got to Brummagem for the night. My heart ached for the little thing. It caught with its wee mouth at our coat-sleeves and at our mouths when we tried to comfort it by talking to it. Poor little wench! It wanted its mammy, as we're lying cold in the grave. Well, says I, it'll be clung to death if it lets out supper as it did its dinner. Let's get some woman to feed it. It comes natural to women to do for babbies. So we asked the chambermaid at the inn, 
and she took quite kindly to it, and we got a good supper, and grew rare and sleepy what with the warmth and with our long ride in the open air. The chambermaid said she would like to have it to sleep with her, only Mrs. would scold so, but it looked so quiet and smiling-like as it lay in her arms that we thought t'would be no trouble to have it with us. I says, see, Jennings, how women-folk do quiet in babbies. It's just as I said. He looked grave. He were always thoughtful-looking, though I never heard him say anything very deep. At last, says he, young woman, have you gotten a spare nightcap? Mrs. always keeps nightcaps for gentlemen as does not like to unpack, says she, rather quick. Ay, but young woman, it's one of your nightcaps I want. The babby seems to have taken a mind to you, and maybe in the dark it might take me for you if I'd get in your nightcap on. The chambermaid smirked and went for a cap, but I laughed outright at the old bearded chap, thinking he'd make himself like a woman just by putting on a woman's cap. However, he'd not be laughed out on it, so I held the babby till he were in bed. Such a night as we had on it. Babby began to scream of the old-fashioned, and we took it turn and turn about to sit up and rock it. My heart were very sore for the little one as it groped about with its mouth, but for all that I could scarce keep from smiling at the thought of us two old chaps, the one with a woman's nightcap on, sitting on our hinder ends for half the night, hushabying a babby as wouldn't be hushabied. Toward morning, poor little wench, it fell asleep, fairly tired out with crying. But even in its sleep it gave such pitiful sobs, quivering up from the very bottom of its little heart, that once or twice I almost wished it lay on its mother's breast at peace forever. Jennings fell asleep, too, but I began for to reckon up our money. It were little enough we had left. Our dinner the day afore had taken so much. I didn't know what our reckoning would be for that night lodging and supper and breakfast. Doing a sum always sent me asleep ever since I were a lad, so I fell sound in a short time, and were only awakened by a chambermaid tapping at the door to say she'd dressed the babby before her missus were up if we liked. But, bless you, we never thought of undressing it the night afore, and now it were sleeping so sound, and we were so glad of the peace and quietness that we thought it were no good to waken it up to screech again. Well, there's Mary asleep for a good listener. I suppose you're getting weary of my tale, so I'll not be long over ending it. The reckoning left us very bare, and we thought we'd best walk home, for it were only sixty mile, they told us, and not stop again for naught save victuals. So we left Brummagem, which is as black a place as Manchester without looking so like home, and walked all that day, carrying Babby turn and turn about. It were well fed by chambermaid afore we left and the day were fine, and folk began to have some knowledge of the proper way of speaking, and we were more cheery at thought of home, though mine, God knows, were lonesome enough. We stopped none for dinner, but at bagging time we get in a good meal at a public house, and fed the babby as well as we could, but that were but poorly. We got a crust, too, for it to suck. Chambermaid put us up to that. That night, whether we were tired or what, and I don't know, but it were dree work, and the poor little wench had slept out her sleep, and began the cry as wore my heart out again. Says Jennings, says he, We should not have set out so like gentlefolk atop of the coach yesterday. Nay, lad, we should have had more to walk if we had not ridden, and I'm sure both you and I so weary are tramping. So he were quiet a bit, but he were one of them as were sure to find out somewhat had been done amiss when there was no going back to undo it. So presently he coughs, as if he were going to speak, and I says to myself, "'At it again, my lad,' says he. 
"'I ask pardon, neighbor, but it strikes me it would have been better for my son "'if he had never begun to keep company with your daughter.' "'Well, that put me up, and my heart got very full. "'And but that I were carrying her babby, I think I should have struck him. "'At last I could hold in no longer, and says I, "'Better say at once it would have been better for God never to have made the world, "'for then we'd never have been in it, to have had the heavy hearts we have now.' "'Well,' he said, that were a rank blasphemy.' But I thought his way of casting up again the events God had pleased to send were worse blasphemy. However, I said not more angry for the little babby's sake, as were the child of his dead son as well as of my dead daughter. The longest lane will have a turning, and that night came to an end at last, and we were footsore and tired enough, and to my mind the babby were getting weaker and weaker, and it wrung my heart to hear its little wail. I'd have given my right hand for one of yesterday's hearty cries. We were wanting our breakfasts, and so it were too, motherless babby. We could see no public houses, so about six o'clock, only we thought it were later, we stopped at a cottage, where a woman were moving about near the open door. Says I, good woman, may we rest a bit? Come in, says she, wiping a chair as looked bright enough afore with her apron. It were a cheery, clean room, and we were glad to sit down again, though I thought my legs would never bend at the knees. In a minute she fell in noticing the babby, and took it in her arms, and kissed it again and again. "'Missus,' says I, "'we're not without money, and if you'd give us somewhat for breakfast, we'd pay you honest. And if you would wash and dress that poor baby, and get some poppies down its throat, for it's well nigh clemmed, I'd pray for you till my dying day.' So she said not, but give me the babby back, and afore you could say Jack Robinson, she'd a pan on the fire and bread and cheese on the table. When she turned around, her face looked red, and her lips were tight-pressed together. Well, we were right down glad on our breakfast, and God bless and reward that woman for her kindness that day. She fed the poor babby as gently and softly, and spoke to it as tenderly as its own mother could have done. It seemed as if that stranger and it had known each other afore, maybe in heaven— where folk's spirits come from, they say. The babby looked up so lovingly in her eyes, and it made little noises more like a dove than aught else. Then she undressed it, poor darling, it were time, touching it so softly, and washed it from head to foot. And as many on its clothes were dirty, and what bits of things its mother had gotten all ready for it, had been sent by the carrier from London. She put him aside, and wrapping little naked babby in her apron, she pulled out a key— as were fastened to a black ribbon, and hung down her breast, and unlocked a drawer in the dresser. I were sorry to be prying, but I could not help seeing in that drawer some little child's clothes all strewed with lavender, and lying by him a little whip and a broken rattle. I began to have an insight into that woman's heart then. She took out a thing or two, and locked the drawer, and went on dressing Babby. Just about then come her husband down— a great big fellow as didn't look half awake, though it were getting late. But he'd heard all as had been said downstairs, as were plain to be seen. But he were a gruff chap. We'd finished our breakfast, and Jennings were looking hard at the woman, as she were getting the babby to sleep with a sort of rocking way. At length, says he, I han learnt the way now. It's two jiggets and a shake, two jiggets and a shake. I can get that babby asleep now myself. The man had nodded cross enough to us and had gone to the door and stood there, whistling with his hands in his breech-pockets, looking abroad. But at last he turns and says, quite sharp, "'I say, missus, I'm to have no breakfast to-day, I suppose.' So with that she kissed the child a long, soft kiss, 
and looking in my face to see if I could take her meaning, gave me the babby without a word. I were loath to stir, but I saw it were better to go. So giving Jennings a sharp nudge, for he'd fallen asleep, I says, "'Missus, what's to pay?' pulling out my money with a jingle, that she might not guess we were at all bare a cash. So she looks at her husband, who said ne'er a word, but were listening with all his ears nevertheless, and when she saw he would not say, she said, hesitating, as if pulled two ways, by her fear of him, "'Should you think sixpence over much?' It were so different to public-house reckoning, for we'd eaten a main deal afore the chap came down. So says I, and missus, what should we give you for the babby's bread and milk? I had it once in my mind to say, and for your trouble with it, but my heart would not let me say it, for I could read in her ways how it had been a work of love. So says she, quite quick, and stealing a look at her husband's back as looked all ear, if ever a back did. Oh, we could take naught for the little babby's food if it had eaten twice as much, bless it. With that he looked at her, such a scowling look. She knew what he meant, and stepped softly across the floor to him, and put her hand on his arm. He seemed as though he'd shake it off by a jerk on his elbow, but she said, quite low, For poor little Johnny's sake, Richard. He did not move or speak again, and after looking in his face for a minute she turned away, swallowing deep in her throat. She kissed the sleeping baby as she passed when I paid her. To quieten the gruff husband and stop him if he raided her, I could not help slipping another sixpence under the loaf, and then we set off again. Last look I had of that woman, she were quietly wiping her eyes with the corner of her apron as she went about her husband's breakfast. But I shall know her in heaven. He stopped to think of that long ago May morning, when he had carried his granddaughter under the distant hedgerows, and beneath the flowering sycamores— "'There's not more to say, wench,' said he to Margaret, as she begged him to go on. "'That night we reached Manchester, and I'd found out that Jennings would be glad enough to give up Babby to me. "'So I took her home at once, and a blessing she's been to me.' "'They were all silent for a few minutes, each following out the current of their thoughts. "'Then, almost simultaneously, their attention fell upon Mary, sitting on her little stool.' her head resting on her father's knee, and sleeping as soundly as any infant. Her breath, still like an infant's, came and went as softly as a bird steals to her leafy nest. Her half-open mouth was as scarlet as the winter berries, and contrasted finely with the clear paleness of her complexion, where the eloquent blood flushed carnation at each motion. Her black eyelashes lay on the delicate cheek, which was still more shaded by the masses of her golden hair that seemed to form a nest-like pillar for her as she lay. Her father, in fond pride, straightened one glossy curl for an instant, as if to display its length and silkiness. The little action awoke her, and like nine out of ten people in similar circumstances, she exclaimed, opening her eyes to their fullest extent, "'I'm not asleep. I've been awake all the time.' Even her father could not keep from smiling, and Job Lee and Margaret laughed outright. "'Come, wench,' said Job, "'don't look so gloppin' because thou'st fallen asleep while an old chap like me was talking on old times. It were like enough to send thee to sleep. Try if thou canst keep thine eyes open while I read thy father a bit on a poem as is written by a weaver like ourselves. A rare chap I'll be bound as he who could weave verse like this.' So adjusting his spectacles on his nose— cocking his chin, crossing his legs, and coughing to clear his voice, 
He read aloud a little poem of Samuel Bramford's he had picked up somewhere. God help the poor who on this wintry morn come forth from alleys dim and courts obscure. God help yon poor pale girl who drops forlorn and meekly her affliction doth endure. God help her outcast lamb, she trembling stands, all wan her lips and frozen red her hands. Her sunken eyes are modestly downcast, her night-black hair streams on the fitful blast, her bosom passing fair is half revealed, and oh, so cold the snow lies there congealed. Her feet benumbed, her shoes all rent and worn, God help the outcast lamb who stands forlorn, God help the poor. God help the poor, an infant's feeble wail, comes from yon narrow gateway, and behold, a female, crouching there so deathly pale, huddling her child to screen it from the cold, her vesture scant, her bonnet crushed and torn. A thin shawl doth her baby dear enfold, and so she bides the ruthless gale of morn, which almost to her heart hath sent its cold. And now she sudden darts a ravening look, as one with new hot bread goes past the nook, and as the tempting load is onward borne, she weeps, God help thee, helpless one, forlorn, God help the poor. God help the poor, behold yon famished lad, no shoes nor hose his wounded feet protect, with limping gait and looks so dreamy sad, he wanders onward, stopping to inspect each window stored with articles of food. He yearns but to enjoy one cheering meal. Oh, to the hungry palate viands rude would yield a zest the famished only feel. He now devours a crust of mouldy bread. With teeth and hands the precious boon is torn. Unmindful of the storm that round his head impetuous sweeps. God help thee, child forlorn. God help the poor. God help the poor. Another have I found. A bowed and venerable man is he. His slouched hat with faded crape is bound. His coat is grey and threadbare, too, I see. The rude wind seems to mock his hoary hair. His shirtless bosom to the blast is bare, and he turns and casts a wistful eye, and with scant napkin wipes the blinding spray, and looks around as if he fain would spy. Friends he had feasted in his better day. Ah, some are dead, and some have long forborne to know the poor, and he is left forlorn. God help the poor. God help the poor who in lone valleys dwell, or by far hills where wind and heather grow. Theirs is a story sad indeed to tell, yet little cares the world and less t'would know about the toil and want men undergo. The wearying loom doth call them up at morn. They work till worn-out nature sinks to sleep. They taste, but are not fed. The snow drifts deep around the fireless cot, and blocks the door. The night-storm howls a dirge across the moor. And shall they perish thus, oppressed and lorn? Shall toil and famine hopeless still be born? No. God will yet arise and help the poor. Amen, said Barton, solemnly and sorrowfully. Mary wench, could thou copy me them lines, dost think? That's to say, if Job there has no objection. Not I. More they're heard and read in the better, say I. So Mary took the paper, and the next day, on a blank half-sheet of a valentine, all bordered with hearts and darts, a valentine she had once suspected to come from Jem Wilson, she copied Bamford's beautiful little poem. 
End of chapter 9.